This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitive. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello and welcome to The Views Room, a podcast by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm sitting here in Hong Kong. I'm going to be chatting with Katrina Hamlin, our columnist, about the state of Hong Kong, its extradition treaty, and various forms of unrest that have been manifesting about the same. And with Alec McFarlane about the recent stream of listings by Chinese companies in the United States, how the markets have received them, and some signs of dissatisfaction there as well. So, Katrina, welcome on the show. Thank you. So if you can just explain to our our listeners a little bit about what's happening in Hong Kong, Um, we've got uh, this this fracas right now over an extradition agreement between Hong Kong, China, we cover Macau and Taiwan as well, I think. Mm. Um, And it seems to have provoked some some dissatisfaction among the populace. What's, What's going on? Okay, so earlier this year, the Hong Kong government said that it was considering changes to the city's rules on fugitive surrender. And they said that the reason we needed to think about this now is that there was a rather bloody murder case in Taiwan um, where the suspect, uh, who was a Hong Konger, returned to Hong Kong. And because we don't at the moment have a long-term extradition agreement with Taiwan, there wasn't really any way to get this guy back to Taiwan to face justice. And so the argument went, uh, we needed to change the rules uh, to make that possible for this case and for any other cases that come up in the future. Um, Okay, I mean, so far, so good. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, obviously we have uh, this parallel uh, case in, in Canada right now where Meng Wanzhou, who is the CFO of Huawei, was detained Flying through, uh, flying through Canada on the behest of the U.S. for an extradition treaty, um, by an extradition treaty. Um, you know, is, how does this play into that, do you see? Right. So this original example concerned Taiwan, but the worry is that this could be used to surrender fugitives to the mainland. Um, and it, the timing is kind of interesting because, as you say, there's been this really contentious case involving Canada and the U.S. and, um, you know... Right, pe- well, and right now, Hong Kong is is marking the anniversary of the Tiananmen protests in 1989. Mm. Um, we've had other protest movements more recently in Hong Kong um, over, you know, legal rights, political suffrage, stuff like this. Yeah. Um, this seems to have really got people up in arms, though. I mean, I be- the, the European Union, uh, the United States government has expressed concern... Um, I mean, what what is the big problem? I mean, Hong Kong is part of China. Mm. Um, presumably, there are people who commit crimes in 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 China that are, you know um, should be repatriated from Hong Kong and, and vice versa. I mean, I know there's been a lot of mainland criminals come down to Hong Kong and and do bad things and then go across the border and they can't be got at. What what's the problem? Well, there's a few different problems. Um, first of all, as you said, it comes in the context of a string of different events that some people read as the mainland encroaching on Hong Kong and its supposed autonomy under the One Country, Two Systems Agreement um, that was established in 97. So there's that, first of all. And then I think um, you know, people are worried that this is kind of bigger than Hong Kong, that um, it, all kinds of people could be affected by this, potentially. Even visitors to the city, possibly. Right, um, well, as Manjo was just visiting exactly. Canada. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so I think that's why it's kind of caught people's imagination. The other thing that you know is especially relevant um, to us when we're thinking about uh, business and finance in Hong Kong um, is that um, in the the first version of, of the amendment to um, this legislation, uh, there were several um, white collar crimes listed. Now that's been sort of edited a little bit because of um, all the concerns that have come in from different parties. The government's now taken nine of those crimes off the agenda, but some white collar crimes are, are still included there. For example, corruption and bribery. And then there's also a concern that you could get into trouble for one reason, but be caught um, under this legislation for a different reason. If you remember, well, I mean, the, the government, the Chinese government, can. I mean, you're not convicted just by being extradited. You're there to stand trial in China. Um, but I mean, I guess I can see the the concern is that just by being just by extraditing somebody just by having that power you're already kind of intimidating because it's a mainland court it's different from the Hong Kong courts they don't have the the reputation for impartiality that Hong Kong courts do much the opposite mm-hmm. um, but i mean and, and i guess the other question you know there there've been <laughs> there's a lot of people who've done business in China you know 10 20 years ago like especially before the anti corruption campaign went through when when bribing people was was just the way you you did business. I mean, and that was just taken for granted, cutting these corners or, or, or doing these bad things. And But now, technically, would these people be liable under this new law? I'm not sure liable is the right well, term. Sorry, but extraditable. If, if you've done something that's a crime in both jurisdictions, then you, you fit the profile of someone who could potentially be surrendered as a fugitive. The other thing that I think is quite significant is that it's it's not, you know, the concern is, is not only that somebody might, be surrendered as a fugitive for something they'd actually done, but that other crimes might be used as some kind of pretext. So if you remember that case where a bookseller was was seized, he supposedly... He was publishing critical books of Xi Jinping. Yes, that's right, yeah. He supposedly gave himself up and um, confessed to a hit-and-run crime in um, in Ningbo, I think, some years earlier, which had nothing to do with the reasons, you know, we suspect that he was really in, in trouble and on the wrong side of the mainland authorities. And there are some concerns that that kind of incident would be somehow facilitated by this legislation. And, you know, we should think about the other side of the argument too. The Hong Kong government wants us to notice that there are a number of safeguards in place. And that's true, but some of those safeguards have been questioned. Our colleagues on the news side uh, spoke to some Hong Kong judges who said, for example, that they weren't convinced the judiciary would have sufficient powers to act as a, a foolproof safeguard. Right. Well, obviously, I mean, right now on the Canadians' mind is the fact that they have two of their nationals locked up in Chinese jails and have not, you know, for months ever since Meng Wanzhou was detained and they haven't had access to a lawyer. So clearly there are concerns that, you know, that this whole thing is getting politicized in both directions. I guess separately from that, there's also you know, the risk that Chinese court cases can drag on, um, you get stuck in another country, even if it's something that has no political ramifications whatsoever. If you've got a Chinese supplier who's decided to, to, to charge you or convinced his local government to charge you with something criminal and get you across the border, if you've got any sort of conflict that like that, you could also be extracted. And then, you know, just, mm-hmm. just with that threat, you've already kind of lost whether you win the case or not. You know, you've got months stuck in China paying lawyers and dealing with stuff. Yeah, and just on on that note, uh, the politicisation of this problem and the discussions around this problem, 
a lot of people I've spoken to have compared this to the debate around Article 23, which is the very uh, controversial national security bill that Hong Kong was looking at several years ago. And they said to me that at that time, the debate moved quite slowly. It took about nine months to move from the first discussions through to the enormous protests that ultimately saw the government stepping back from um, their attempts to push that through. This is moving along much more quickly. And so I think there's also some concern that, on the one hand, that there's some pressure coming from somewhere, from Beijing, from Hong Kong. Clearly from know. Beijing. I mean, they've come out and said they're, they're, <laughs> right, they're yeah. supportive. The, the liaison office they, they yeah, has been, been vocal, about yeah. it, uh, that, that they want this to go through. Right. So there's that. And then, you know, at the same time, as the debate goes on, you have more pressure from the other side. Um, the the people who are worried about Hong Kong's um, autonomy, uh, the pro-independence voices, the pro-democracy voices. And that in itself is, is quite scary to some people because um, it raises the spectre of further instability, um, discontent um, in Hong Kong, which can have wider implications. Yes, well, and we've seen how the Chinese government has responded to that in the past. Mm. Um, I guess the broadest question here, what's suggested is that fundamentally foreigners still don't trust rule of law in China. They don't trust that they'll get a fair trial. Is that fair? Yes, and I think that's really at the heart of the business community's concerns about what's happening here because many of the, the businesses and financial institutions who've made Hong Kong their home or who have an outpost here use that to do what they do and um you know it's why they're in hong kong and and not in the mainland um so i think that's yeah, really like fundamental the stock connect where all these people came to trade chinese shares they're in hong kong not yeah. in the mainland for a reason i mean presumably i mean and they all point to like the rule of law like mm. i would rather be in the hong kong jurisdiction because i'm going to be doing things that chinese authorities might not like with my my hedge position or whatever. That's right. And then the other point related to that is, as we were saying earlier, this is, you know, one of a string of events that have suggested that the rule of law in Hong Kong is is perhaps not what it used to be in the past. And I think it's a a reminder as well that at the time that China and the UK were thinking about what was going to happen in Hong Kong and how to arrange the legislation, the rules here for the future, there was a feeling that Hong Kong would become, sorry, China would become more like Hong Kong rather than vice versa. And that's not what has happened. And I think what we're starting to see now is that the way things were set up, perhaps, you know, they weren't designed for for what was about to come. Yeah, well, clearly all the the howls from foreign governments suggest uh, that, that that's getting a lot of attention. I guess we'll see where we end up. Thanks for talking to me, Katrina. Okay, and now I'm going to turn to Alec McFarlane, finance columnist, also here in Hong Kong with me. Um, Alec, I want to talk to you about a long-running trend, uh, a love affair between Chinese tech companies and the New York stock exchanges. Um, Despite all these recent trade war clouds, we continue to see companies going to New York and listing. Um, We just had luck in list, been a bunch of fintech and e-commerce plays come on. performance has been a little wobbly. Can you just kind of talk us through how, how things are looking for, for Chinese IPOs in New York this year? Yeah, sure. So last year was nearly a record. I think it was the second uh, the, the second highest or the second best year for, for Chinese IPOs in the States. It was like over 30 companies that listed. Um, and a lot of the, the, the sort of pitch, I mean, amongst all the sort of noise of the, the, the trade war, a lot of the kind of pitch of these Chinese companies listing in the States 
is that they are very domestic. They're kind of like a play on Chinese consumption. There's not a lot of kind of, you know, cross-border ties between them and the US. Um, however, yeah, the performance has been pretty wobbly uh, amongst a lot of them, and uh, most of it is is not due to the trade war at all. No. Well, we've seen some some short... I mean, like, there's been... <laughs> these guys have been targets of, of short seller attacks for, for a long time, ever since 2011. We've had a couple of uh, interesting ones recently. Who's Who's been... Who's been on the receiving end of, of these these short attacks? Yeah, so the the, the two that jump out one is uh, Pinduoduo, which is kind of like the uh, sort of like a cross between uh, sort of like a social kind of e-commerce website cross between Groupon and uh, Alibaba almost. And the other one was like Yushin, which is like a secondhand uh, marketplace for for Chinese used cars. So you were originally uh, quite optimistic about Yushin when they listed, but since then there's been. A short attack on the company and and the stock market seems to have not taken it very well what's the issue yeah so i mean initially the the idea of secondhand car apps in in china is is, is a good one you know the, the there's like a glut of uh you know, um, cars that are now secondhand that are kind of coming onto the market. There's been some political liberalization of the market. There's been yeah. some pl- political liberalization. You know, the, the movement of well, cars in China is, is, now a lot, yeah, is, is now a lot easier. The, the movement of cars, secondhand cars in China is now a lot easier. And also, you know, the idea of, um, you know, Yushin also deals with uh, secondhand car dealers. So this kind of idea that, um, you know, Yushin would, would gather data to help them with inventory management was quite attractive versus companies that didn't. However, you know, since since the company listed, though, I mean, there's been a short report alleging, um, you know, financial proprieties, which which the company has denied, and also there's, I mean, a lot of a lot of what Yushin does. Yushin makes most of its money facilitating credit, and there's there's two problems. Like with that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. One is um, obviously like a kind of investor sentiment towards. Well, it's consumer finance, and we all know what what's happened to to consumer financiers in in China. Not everybody, but it hasn't been good. Well, like, that has been has been great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, and also, a- you know, in a slowing economy, um, you know, which China's economy is slowing. There's there's you know, kind of like finding borrowers that can pay back that money, and also borrowers' ability to repay the money uh, is now is now in question. Well, if I can just jump on one key point here, which is that this theme we've always seen watching Chinese companies in the states has been short sellers, kind of going. And looking at company reports inside China, like the state administration of industry reports, SAC filings, and saying, oh, this number doesn't match what they're telling U.S. investors. Um, You know, there can be reasons for that that are perfectly honest and explainable. But there's just been this kind of difficulty um, in harmonizing the way some of these companies govern themselves with the way that governance practices are supposed to work in the states, um, with how transparent they are with their their shareholders. Um, there's just this kind of entrenched suspicion. Now, most recently, we've had two big personalities, um, namely Steve Bannon um, and Mark Cuban, come out and say, oh, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have Chinese IPOs in the States anymore, um, which sounds extreme. <laughs> um, but behind it is this kind of undergoing resentment of like, you know, these guys are coming in and yeah, they're great companies. They've got great markets, but they're not going to share any of that good stuff with their American shareholders. And we have very limited abilities to enforce laws against companies that, you know, as you pointed out, don't do much trade in the States. They don't have much business there. I mean, how do you think, do you see this relationship getting worse? I mean, is this a, a trend where, where the, the breakup is kind of in the in the pipe? Or I don't think so. I mean, I, I think something like 15, 20% of, of fund raised last year in New York were, were from 
Chinese companies, you know, they're they're a big contributor to to the New York Stock Exchanges. I don't see that playing out. I mean, if it in in the extreme situation, it does. I mean, that's going to be a boon for the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. I think, you know, when this chatter, you know, if if there was chatter about this a few years ago, and there wasn't, you know, because a lot most of the companies that that listed last year were Chinese technology companies in New York. What has happened since then is that Hong Kong has now had a lot of those come to Hong Kong. It's you know allowing well, China itself rights. is opening this new tech board that's going to yeah do exactly. But I mean, it's there very, used to be all these restrictions that they, they yeah. weren't allowed to list in China. They couldn't meet it, but exactly but now they'll yeah. be able to. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the the the, the Shanghai board is is still very nascent. Sure. We're not really seeing a lot of big names, um, you know, being being attracted yeah, to. Well, it. Well, it's just getting started. But to your point yeah. about Hong Kong, I mean, Alibaba mm-hmm. is now talking about or reported. To be talking uh, or mulling uh, a second listing in Hong Kong, raising another twenty billion dollars, mm-hmm. um, would that inspire a, a tide of returnees? Do you think? I mean, it's Alibaba. I think uh, that's the whole idea from mm-hmm. you know by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and, and absolutely, yeah, yeah, I think it would. All right. Well, Hong Kong Stock Exchange certainly loves everything Steve Bannon is saying. <laughs> See if anybody else listens. Um, thanks for talking with Alec. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. Thanks for Alec and Katrina for coming aboard the show. Uh, I'd like to also express our gratitude for producers Freddie Joyner and Sharon Lamb. Thanks to you guys. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room and Exchange on iTunes or whatever podcast subscription software you use. And share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. Thanks.